0: Welcome to CBS LA Uncut, where there's so much more to the story.
1: I'm CBS Los Angeles anchor Peter Doubt. Each week, we'll take a look at a story you've seen on the news and go deeper. More interviews, more insight, more information. Now in this episode, I'm talking with three Montecito firefighters who are simply heroes in every sense of the word. Fate put them in the eye of danger. Without hesitation, they risked their lives to save countless others. Breaking news, a very dangerous
2: fire is roaring right now in the rugged hills north of Santa Paula in Ventura County.
1: In early December, wind-driven fires just ripped across Southern California. At one point, we were covering five fires at the same time. The Thomas Fire started in Santa Paula and then quickly just tore through Ventura and into Santa Barbara County, burning more than 280,000 acres and destroying more than a thousand structures. We heard the helicopters and then went outside and noticed that on the east end of town,
2: um, it was on fire and within no time. It spread all the way through the back foothills here and started to crest over. Um, the police came and
1: asked uh, for a evacuation and we've been, a few neighbors have been staying behind to um, just protect our houses. In the long history of wildfires, the Thomas Fire is the biggest that California's ever had. The fire left behind 440 square miles of bare earth, and just to put that in perspective, that's nearly half the size of Rhode Island. Earth no longer able to hold large amounts of rain. And it was only just one month later, the charred hills above Montecito got that rain, unfortunately, and as expected, the hillside couldn't hold it. This is what it sounded like for one homeowner, as a wall of water came barreling down the hill towards his house. Turn around, the flash flood's right there. The flash flood's right there. Get out of here, go. Oh my God, mom. Close the door. Get, get, get ready to go out. Wake that up.
0: Wake that up. South Coast speed, Vice. We have a river flowing down San Ysidro
1: Road. Completely unpassable. The Montecito Fire Department was as ready as it could be that night. The entire station was on duty and deployed throughout the area in case anything happened. And Once it finally did, they, without hesitation, jumped into action and started doing what they always do saving lives three of the montecito firefighters out that night were division supervisor mave juarez captain ben hauser and paramedic andy Rupp. they invited me to montecito about two weeks after the slide to talk about their experiences and also walk through the areas that were hit the hardest ben and andy were part of a dramatic rescue of a 14 year old girl who was swept from her house and buried in a debris pile We'll get to their story in just a bit. Able
3: to make it all the First, way we
1: start with Maeve. On the night of January 8th into the early hours of January 9th, Maeve took her team up the hill to monitor the San Isidro Creek Bridge, the bridge that ultimately exploded after the mud flow ruptured a gas line directly underneath. She went up there looking for rain, looking for some flooding, looking for anything out of the ordinary. What she got was nothing she could have ever imagined. Mixed with actual emergency calls from those first hours, this is her story. It's
3: creeping up into the oak trees, and it looks like it's probably going to cross the street in the next uh, 20
1: minutes or so. First off, let me just ask you, Maeve, how are you doing right now?
3: I'm doing well. I'm tired, but I'm doing really well.
1: It's been a long couple of weeks, I bet.
3: Yes, so I did 29 days on the Thomas fire, and Monday was my first day back at work when it started raining, and so now we're on day 16 of the uh, January storm cleanup.
1: So take us back to the pre-dawn hours of January 9th. What happened?
3: So January 8th, everyone was mandated to work. So we all came in early on Monday morning and just prepped the district for a rainstorm. We cleaned out gutters, cleaned out canyons and creeks, filled sandbags all day, and just kind of waited around for the storm. I think originally it was supposed to start raining at 6. And then the Weather Service kept bumping that forward. And so we all just kept kind of waiting for the rain to show. And we were all talking about how the rain hadn't come yet and when it was going to show up. And then it showed up. So I think I got a couple. Maybe 45 minutes of sleep, somewhere around 11 o'clock, I laid on the floor in the station and then kept setting an alarm. I would get up and go drive around, come back, lay down for a little bit longer. And then right around, I think 12.50, I got up and started driving around and kind of stayed out driving on the district. The times are blurry. Around 2.30, I think it really kind of started to rain. I was sitting on the San Isidro Creek Bridge. I just taken a video of the rain coming down and wanted to go check out another creek that is notorious for flowing during storms. And about 65 seconds after I left the bridge was when the gas explosion took out the bridge.
1: Got a
0: bright orange glow, some kind of uh, big fireball
3: massive light in the sky. The sky blew up. I didn't, I I heard kind of a hissing noise. I never actually heard the explosion. Um, But at the same time, there were boulders coming down the road, and the rain was so heavy that windshield wipers couldn't keep up with it. So there was a lot of other noise going on. But the sky was completely illuminated, and I took some videos, wasn't exactly sure what was going on. So I called it in to the branch that I was working for, and he said that they could also see it from the station.
0: We have a large natural gas leak. We're going to need a gas company to cut off the gas.
3: So I turned around on the road that I was on and headed back. And as I headed up the road, there were several homeowners coming down in their vehicles, yelling that their house had exploded and that there was a fireball behind them. And most of those vehicles were being pushed by the water. So most of the vehicles were just skating down the street. Um, At that time, I parked my vehicle and ended up on foot to try to figure out where the fire was coming from and then realized that we couldn't get through on the road. Had some radio traffic with various resources on how to get people in.
1: What was going through your mind?
3: I don't remember. I know that I didn't, I wasn't really stressed out. I just knew that we kind of had to arrange things in order of priority, so. Basically, I knew that there was a house or multiple houses on fire, and our top priority was making sure that there weren't any people in those houses and getting people out in the surrounding area.
0: We have two victims from the initial explosion at, El, uh, at Casa. Uh, so we have multiple homes with, that are fully involved. These are two residents that have escaped in seek shelter at 771.
1: So once you started seeing the boulders coming down, the mudslide, the people coming out of their homes, the fireball, what did you do? What did you, you you saw people who had been burned?
3: Yeah, the first the first gentleman that walked towards my I was on foot walking towards the fire, trying to get an assessment of what we had, and I could see a gentleman walking to me from the flames. He was carrying a dog, and he wasn't saying much. I made contact with him. He said he was burned, and at that point. There were several abandoned vehicles, and so there were a lot of people on foot. And another woman drove by, and he said he didn't want any medical attention. He jumped in with her, and they drove off. At that point, uh, the patrol showed up, two other firemen from Montecito, and they started walking into the burning structures as I started dealing with the people on the road and all the animals, trying to get them to a safe place. And that was the time when we determined that the Burnham Wood golf course would kind of be the safe haven for everyone in the area. We didn't know we were trapped in yet, but we knew we had to get people somewhere.
1: And at some point you encountered a woman who had been burned, who needed help. Yeah, you're gonna be able to make it to Burnham Wood with those
3: burned patients. Yeah, affirmative, I'm slowly making my way down park lane with them right now, and we need to fly both of them out of here. So two of my firemen found, they went and did a search on the street, they couldn't get directly to the gas leak, it was too dangerous. So they started on a street to the east of the gas leak and started knocking on doors. The second house that they knocked on were two burn victims in the house, and they said that they had crawled from their home from a street to the west. So their house had been fully involved. They jumped from the second story of their home with their dog, and the woman had two broken feet, and so she couldn't walk. So one of my firemen carried her to my vehicle, and I took over care for the two patients. And they continued their search for more people.
1: And did you also give your clothes to help someone?
3: I did. So when she jumped out of her house, her nightgown had ripped off. And so she didn't have any clothing. It was still pouring rain. I knew that she was probably going into shock. She had some significant injuries. So the only choice that I had was to give her my clothes.
1: You gave her the clothes off your own back.
3: I did. I did. I put my uniform on her. And I had a shirt in my gear, which is in the back of the truck that was soaking wet. So I put that on myself and some rain pants that I had in the back of the truck as well. Gave her my dry uniform so that she could one, have clothing on and two, hopefully try to warm her up.
1: I know that you guys are trained to do this. (laughs) Firefighters obviously come to aid people in need of help. Some would say that what you did went above and beyond just the, the normal call of
3: duty. I think anyone, I think you would have done the same thing if you had been in the situation. I think anyone would have taken the clothes off their back to help another person who was in need.
1: The other interesting thing is you were cut off at some point from everyone else.
3: Yes. So at some point in the evening, or I guess it was early in the morning at that point, we determined that we had no escape route. We couldn't get people out and we couldn't get any resources in. So for the first 24 hours, it was myself a patrol truck with two firemen on it, and an engine with four firefighters on it as well. And so the seven of us managed that entire division by ourselves for the first 24 hours.
0: Olive Mill is impassable at Olive Mill Lane. Large amount of water coming down Olive Mill at this time.
3: We had several medicals, we had rescues. I don't remember the number of people that we rescued, but we ended up flying any evacuees out by helicopter and then hoisted patients and victims out by helicopter and then the two burn victims, we also flew out in helicopter as well.
1: And this wasn't easy. This was pouring rain, there was a mudslide going on, complete darkness, the electricity was out. Yeah. Had you ever experienced anything like that before?
3: No, I hadn't. I hope I never do again.
1: Uh, was it scary?
3: I, no, I wasn't scared. Um, I felt a sense of urgency, definitely, because I felt like I just kept running into patient after patient and people that needed medical care, and I felt at a point that there was just too much going on, and we really just needed to prioritize it and figure out a way to get the most needed patients out of there, deal with the fire, deal with the gas, deal with the mud, deal with the evacuees, deal with the water, deal with debris, deal with everything, and just really try to put it in an order that made sense to me that I could logically manage it. Affirmative across the street, additionally there's still tons of homeowners trying to evacuate at this time.
1: When did you finally get a moment to take a breath and look back on the, how incredible this, this horrible event was, that you were able to really comprehend what happened?
3: I'm hoping next week I'll get that moment. I'm still fully engaged in the incident and I haven't had a day off. Um, I just haven't had time yet. Talking to you now is kind of bringing it back up, but no, I haven't had any time off yet to really kind of think about it.
1: So you're still trying to, to process some of the things that you've seen. What I know, I know you're a mom of three. Yes. Was there anything that tugged on your heartstrings as a mother?
3: There were several times. I just, we, when we would go into an area where we knew we were rescuing people, I just hoped that I didn't see any children. I really, you know, whether I'm on a fire or doing anything like this, I really try to separate my personal life just because I don't want my mind to go there so that I can effectively manage an incident.
0: We're 16 to 75 San Leandro. We're unable to pass through San Leandro but we do hear uh, people screaming for help through here. We're going to try to access uh, on foot uh Medic Engine 91 when they come down this way.
1: Did you think about your kids?
3: I did, yeah. I mean you can't help but think about it in that situation. There were a lot of parents who were separated from children and vice versa and you can't help but put yourself in those shoes. But As a firefighter, as a first responder, you have to quickly push that out of your mind and realize that there's a job at hand to do.
1: You're credited with saving not just dozens, but possibly hundreds of lives. Do you realize
3: that? It's not just me. It wasn't just me. I had an incredible team of firefighters in there with me that night and day. So it's not just me.
1: Does that feel rewarding for you?
3: It does, absolutely. Yeah. Knowing that we could help even one person is huge for all of us.
1: And I know you're probably, it's not easy to talk about because you're used to this is what you do for a living. But for a lot of people, I, I am sure you're more than just a firefighter. You're a hero. Do you consider yourself a hero?
3: No, I just was doing the job that I showed up to do that day. I knew in my mind that I would probably end up managing a division on an incident. And I knew it probably wouldn't be a fire. So that's just what I showed up to do that day.
1: And was it challenging to have to be sequestered? I know at some point you were completely cut off from, from your team.
3: That was definitely challenging. That was something that I hadn't dealt with before. Uh, with my wildland fire background, I definitely have had divisions where we had to fly supplies in. So I kind of had that background where I knew that it was going to come to a point where we were going to need to either fly people in or fly people out or supplies. So I kind of just fell back into that mode. and. That's the training that I have. So it didn't, it didn't seem that overwhelming.
1: Is there any moment that stands out in your mind that you keep replaying?
3: I would say the two burn victims definitely is the one thing that really tugged at my heartstrings. Um, we, it, it, was all, it all happened at one time. It was when we got that half an inch in five minutes. And that's kind of when all the chaos happened. And I really wanted to get them the medical attention that they needed. And I knew that we were blocked off on all sides and the rain was so heavy I wasn't sure that we were going to be able to get aircraft in to get them. And so it made me a little nervous thinking that I wouldn't be able to give them the care that they needed. But, but we were able to pull it off.
1: Have you been able to find out how they're
3: doing? I have. I've talked to them a few times. Yeah. I've been in contact with them.
1: And they're okay?
3: They're okay. Yes. They're going to be okay. Yeah.
1: I'm sure as a firefighter this is the kind of thing that you live for to have that sort of an experience where you can make a difference in people's lives? Is, I, this, is this completely? I, don't,
3: I didn't sign up for this experience in particular, but I definitely, yeah, we thats that's what makes us feel good at the end of the day is knowing that we've helped people. Yeah.
1: How has this changed you at all?
3: I don't know yet. I'm still in it. I'm, I'm on, we're on day 16 of it, and I haven't, uh, like I said, I haven't really processed it yet, so I don't, I don't know. It's definitely um, an experience to add to my toolbox of decision making, but I, I think there's a lot more to it that I just haven't processed yet.
1: And suffice it to say, probably the biggest disaster you've had to encounter in your career?
3: Yes, definitely. I've, I've, I've done quite a few things with the federal government, but this one by far is, is the biggest.
1: And do you think this is going to bring the community closer together?
3: I do, absolutely. I think that it's already brought our department much closer. I think I think we we're already a family, but I think we're a much closer family now than we were before. And I, I feel that the community feels closer to us as well.
1: Do you think this gives a new appreciation for the work that you and other firefighters do?
3: I knew a lot of those people already. So in my position as a wildland specialist, I go out and do defensible space surveys. So I already work hand-in-hand with the community and know a large majority. And so a lot of the people that were affected were people that I've already worked with and I've already walked their properties with them and had spoken to them and knew their families. So there there was definitely a personal connection to all of it.
1: You almost came close to death yourself.
3: I did, yeah. I think I came close to death several times that night. Uh, There were several moments in hindsight now that I think maybe we shouldn't have been driving around, but we had to help people. But there were several times I was almost swept downstream and I realized my vehicle wasn't safe. So I ended up on foot, walking on walls and climbing fences where I could just to stay out of the debris flow. Um, Someone had to be out to save people, but it definitely wasn't the ideal situation.
1: How lucky do you feel that you weren't killed?
3: feel incredibly lucky, and I've thought about it several times, thinking of the different scenarios that I was in, in different areas where we were helping people get out. Um, but the only thing that comes back to me is I can still hear the people yelling for help in my head, and knowing that I got those people out overrides the fear that I almost was taken on myself. All right.
1: It's it's breathtaking to think about just how close you came to getting hurt or killed.
3: It's pretty incredible, especially from the get-go with the explosion. I don't know, I guess it was just fate that I decided to check out another creek and drove away at the time that I did.
1: Cut off from colleagues and resources, Maeve and her team did everything they could to help victims just make it through the night and when daylight finally broke more than four hours later, they finally realized the full scope of the devastation and knew their work was only just beginning. The fire from the gas explosion where Maeve started her night charred everything within several hundred yards of the blast, including four houses that were burned to the ground. The debris flow loaded with mud, trees, rocks the size of trucks, and pretty much whatever else was in its way carved a path straight through the community, two miles down the hill from the San Inez Mountains all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Many of the residents who were not directly in the path now needed to get out of the area to somewhere safe and dry.
0: I copy that, but the collection casualty point is set up at San Ysidro, confirming that there's a second casualty point set up.
1: And the firefighters coordinated countless air rescues with the Coast Guard and other choppers to get hundreds of people out. The mud was as deep as eight feet in places, and dozens of people, including children, were still missing, many of whom were sound asleep and swept from their beds by the flow. The crews kept working, searching, digging, listening for anything. Two of Mave's Montecito Fire Department colleagues, Captain Ben Hauser and Paramedic Andy Rupp, were among those looking, and here's how they remember it.
2: Yeah, so we we, we have tried to recount it ourselves, trying to you know piece together the day like Maeve mentioned it was a it was just a blur so we tried to write down what we did during the day operationally and and uh, we just lost time basically so we, we can't really figure out the timeline of when things happened. but we we were able to sit down and come up with a series of events um, so uh, as it unfolded for us we woke up at the station so we decided to rest some of our crews because uh, we had an idea that we were in for floodings and that kind of thing obviously we didn't realize the scale, what was going to happen. I think, I don't think anybody did. I think everybody really underestimated what was going to happen. Uh, and we woke up to the to the rain, basically heavy rain at our station. We were located on the east side at our station too. We had three resources pre-staged over there, as well as some of the out-of-town resources. In particular, Long Beach's Swiftwater Rescue Team was uh, just out front of our station. Like I mentioned, we woke up to the heavy rain and then uh, went downstairs, made sure that the station wasn't flooding, that kind of thing, and then. We looked outside, and we saw the, the giant orange glow that was the gas explosion um, on the west side of our district. And we were miles away, but it looked like the whole sky was orange, so we knew we were in store for something. We thought it was, uh, based on what we were seeing out the window, we thought it could have been a structure fire right down the street. We didn't have an idea of what, uh, what the, the, the giant glow actually was. But so I went over the, the station intercom, woke up everybody at the station, like I said, the three units, and we started preparing ourselves for a structure fire at that point.
1: And at what point did you realize that this was really, really bad?
2: So yeah, we we talked about it. It was was really interesting the way it unfolded. We tried to make access to the structure fire, and we got to a point of where we couldn't get to the other side of our district. We were cut off by a debris flow. And at that point, we thought maybe this was just a major flooding. We didn't really realize the scale to what had happened. Um, We could only see what was right in front of us and we could only hear what was going on in dispatch. And that was, you know, talks about multiple rescues and flooding in homes. Um, And again, we didn't realize that it was, uh, the area we were in had homes destroyed, homes washed off their foundation, multiple rescues, that sort of thing. The first thing that we encountered was a a person that had washed up on one of the creek sides. So one of our units had found that person and our engine, uh, we're we're in our, an engine 317, we were called up to that location to search the riverbank. So we put on our changed out of our structure firefighting gear at that point and put on our flood uh, swift water rescue gear. And we made access to the creek and when we got down there we didn't find anybody, but we had an idea that the the what we had thought was you know a swift water rescue scenario wasn't. It was a it was a giant mud flow at that point, uh, the debris flows that we uh, we had an idea of what we are getting ourselves into.
3: Olive Mill Road still impassable
2: for Type 1s. We have a couple of patrols from the RTF here. Um, we're trying to make our way on foot from Olive Mill Lane and Olive Mill Road with uh, ladder. OES 317 will continue to 1355. Also, a report of additional people trapped all along Olive Mill Road They're up, in the, up in their attics, flooding in their homes. After we, we, we made that rescue and we searched the riverbank, we made our way down to a, a known rescue that was going on lower in our district. Uh, when we got down there again, we were cut off, and we were trying to make access to a report of four people trapped in their attic. And again, we were cut off by the debris flow, couldn't access that area.
0: To see in the dark probably wasn't as terrifying because you couldn't see everything. And so, as, as Ben's talking about, we had a couple, you know, encounters before. And you asked earlier, uh, when did it really sink in? And there were multiple levels of it sinking in, right? And so we, we went kind of responding for that structure fire. We were able to see that roads were washed out. We couldn't cross, that there was mud coming down. And that sinks in a little bit. Okay, this is happening. And we're not going to be able to make it to that side of the district. We should stay in our area so we can help people over here. Then we go on the rescue of the woman who's covered in head to toe with mud that is not at her own property who says her house has washed away, that her family's gone. And it still doesn't sink in because we go into the back of that house, which has a creek running behind it, but it's kind of a diversion of the creek. And so it's still something that we can jump across. We step on, a, you know, step on a rock and get across the other side, and it's not adding up. What is, How is this lady covered in mud head to toe? And we're still able to get across this creek. And then we get down a little farther on that creek looking for her family that she's saying is lost. And then we get to this main debris flow then we look at and go, oh, I understand how somebody could get washed away in this. But still, we can only see 10 feet maybe, 20 feet into it. And so not realizing that this is actually the main area that we're going to come up to later that's at Hot Springs and um, Olive Mill and not realizing it's a hundred, you know, multiple hundred yards wide, and then we came and tried to help rescue the family off the roof, and we couldn't access them because of the debris or the mud flow, and realizing that it's coming into houses, but again, not realizing houses are gone, just that there's mud coming into houses and it's going up to the window sills. So for me, it wasn't until we came up and got into that area, coming up to, coming up Hot Springs, going north. Where we got into the area that was multiple hundred yards wide, where we could see down power lines down everywhere. We could see homes that had gotten destroyed. Still not realizing homes were completely gone to the foundation because they weren't there anymore. Um, and that was another level of going, this is really bad. We're going to be looking for bodies at some point in this. That kind of started sinking in at that point. Uh, and then the next day, when you start going around and you see the areas, and then the next week when you get to areas that Maeve was in, that you hadn't been able to access, so it, it's just—it it seems like every day it sinks in more and more. We we were around for for one body that we had recovered, but the initial day, you know, the initial 24 hours, uh, we only came across people that we could help.
1: One of the people Ben and Andy encountered was a woman who was carried from her home by the mud. As they helped her get out of the debris pile into safety, they found out that her husband, son, and daughter were still missing. They went back in to the same area and kept looking.
2: After we dropped the patient off at the casualty collection point, we ended up walking in. And uh, while we were trying to access that debris pile, Andy and I stopped a number of times to reassess our safety. Are we in a good spot? Um, Are we risking? quite a bit to access that area. I know we'd walked over at least a dozen, a dozen power lines at that point. We were in the flow path, and we were essentially walking towards a major gas leak. Uh, it sounded like a, a jet engine at that point, so we knew it was a high pressure gas line, and we were walking in that direction on the heels of a gas explosion that already happened in our district.
3: Patrol anyone just confirmed two explosions at 771 via Mignogna.
2: After walking over maybe the, the, the 12th, power line. We made access to the pile. There were two vehicles in the pile and that's essentially what drew us into that. They both had their hazards on. Andy accessed the pile, made his way up to the vehicles and he checked them to see if there's anybody inside of the vehicles. He ended up determining that there wasn't. At that point we got off the pile and we decided to walk around the other side that we hadn't accessed yet and as I was walking over the the, the gas line, which like I said was incredibly loud, Andy and I were this close to each other and we were we were yelling at each other, basically, to communicate. I heard a cry for help, and I let Andy know. And I said, "Hey, did you did you hear that?" He said, "No. He thought maybe someone was calling for help from the, the lo- vicinity of the house that was located just a, around the corner." But we hailed. We called fire department at that point, and then both of us heard it.
0: Right. And I pointed, you know, 75 yards away because it was so faint. That i thought there was no way there was someone as close to us even though the, that screaming gas man as mention mentioned it was, sounded like a jet engine uh, still i thought no 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 they're, they're, they've got to be way far away because i know whoever it is is screaming at the top of their lungs and he said no i i think it's coming from the pile so i got closer to the pile hey i need your assistance up here we got someone trapped in a debris pile if you could uh just keep making your way up i'm at the entrance to casa Durinda. So at that point I get down, the pile, as Ben mentioned, is probably 20 feet high, and I don't know, 75 feet long, and 20 feet wide, just with debris kind of coming up to a culmination. And on top of that pile, there's essentially a roof on the, from a house on the top of the pile. Um, so I got down under that kind of roof structure and put my ear in, and it blocked out a lot of the gas noise, and I could hear her much more clearly. Was able to ask, are you injured? She's saying, no, how many are you? you? know, She said there's just her by herself in there. Um, so I went up and down the pile, kind of to try to get one access of where she might be in the pile. And then you know told Ben, I'm going I'm to get up on the pile. right? And going up onto the pile, the biggest worry of that from, from all of our training is we're basically just going on pickup sticks. right? So you could take one bad step, and that dislodges something else that dislodges something else, that now collapses her void space that she's in. So a big worry about accessing the pile in the first place, but get on it, find a big tree, luckily, um, where I just am able to climb up the tree, essentially the way up, and then start calling, again, fire department. Okay, where are you? I got her name, so I'm calling her name out and trying to figure out, okay, I got, you know, one access, let me try to get another. Let's try to triangulate, figure out, where she possibly could be. So I'm up on the, on, the, on the tree, which I think is a nice sturdy base that it's not going to affect her void space. And I'm figuring out, OK, I think I have a pretty good idea. I think she's pretty close to where I am now. Um, I'm able to move a couple kind of twigs and branches out of the way. And I'm able to put my head down into the hole a little bit more uh, and listen for her. And she sounds like she's real close. We're having a conversation like we are now. Easy to hear her, although that gas main's still going. We're kind of sheltered inside. Um, and so I know she's close. So I feel good about that. And I had told her when, when I was down below, I had said, don't worry, we're going to get you out of there. You basically just have a house on top of you and a bunch of trees. So it's going to be a while. Um, and in my head going, I hope we get her out of there. Right? I don't know if there's more rain coming. I don't know if this whole debris pile is going to get washed away. I don't know what's going to happen. So I find that underneath the tree, there's a pretty void space, a pretty open space. Like, oh, she's got to be there. So I start digging out a little bit. I get a little more dug out. I take my light, and I shine in different areas. Can you see it now? Can you see now? Can you see now? Everything just trying to locate her, right? And I, I get enough space under the tree. I shine the light under the tree. I know she's under here. She's going to see the light. Things are going to start going well. I shine the light down there. No, can't see it. No, I don't know what you're talking about. But she was able to see kind of this area over here. So now I turn my efforts back to that side. Again, just pulling off little branches, little things that aren't going to, you know, affect the space. And I eventually pull this twig, and she goes, "Ow!" And I go, Whoa, <laughs> "What just happened? How, how did this little tiny twig, you know, hurt?" She goes, "Oh, it's pulling my hair." So then I lift it up, I can see hair, I fall the hair back to this round dirt clod, and I go poke on it. Is this your head? She goes, Yeah, it's my head. So I'm pretty sure she was visible the whole time that I was trying to figure out where she was, but it was just covered in so much dirt and mud and twigs and branches that I had no idea. Um, so once we found, you know, once I was able to locate her. Uh, We started moving some more pieces out, Long Beach showed up, Long Beach Swiftwater from Long Beach Fire, um, and that was great. We were able to start moving bigger members and have that reassurance that two of us agree that we can move something and not have it completely collapse the space we're working in. Uh, So we had moved a toolbox that basically went in the back of a pickup truck, moved that out of the way. We had to move a refrigerator out of the way, started going down. piece of a transformer piece of a transformer right. got moved out of the way and we're just pulling things out handing them down getting them off the debris pile we get to the point where we can kind of clear her her head she can lift her face up clean her face off a little bit um, so she can see talk to her try to reassure she did an amazing job the whole time she was in there she was just cold wanting to get out confused she asked if she was still in her home you might be a part of it, but you're definitely not in your home. That's affirmative. And she's in a debris pile uh, at the entrance of Casa in the 300 hot springs.
2: one point when Andy had climbed on the pile, we determined that this was the daughter of the mother that we just helped extricate. And putting the pieces together after calling for help, so we, we talked to our supervisor, our group supervisor at that point, asked if there's any resources in the area. I think I asked for three resources with urban search and rescue capability said we didn't have anything. So he uh, got back and he said, you try do it with, with the resources you have. At that point, Long Beach, that's when they availed one of their squads to us. And they showed up and that's when we really got into it. We were really able to move things. As the rescue progressed, like Andy was talking about, we had to hand over hand all this debris. Because we were located next to the gas main leak, we couldn't use power tools. So it took manpower at that point. So that manpower started showing up. We had three Montecito resources there. And then we also had both Long Beach uh, rescue squads from their Swift Water Rescue Team. And that was great because like I said, for for about the first hour of the rescue, we had to move stuff hand over hand. And as the resources showed up, not only did they bring tools to help affect the rescue, they also uh, decided that you know with all these people on the pile, with all the people that were basically focusing on this rescue, we had to start sending resources out and searching the immediate area, searching the foundations where these homes essentially came from, as well as the area. So as resources showed up to help, we either assigned them to monitor the atmosphere that we were in as a result of the gas leak, to basically check back with our dispatch center if another cell, another uh, storm cell, was moving through that was going to cause another debris flow. And then as we were able to assign those critical roles, um, we were able to also divvy out uh, the, the immediate area we were in to those resources to go search. At that point, we started to get inundated, like I talked about, and we were able to, to send those resources out and, and go search the local area.
0: For as much things that were not falling into place, as much chaos as there was, and as many obstacles that were in our way, to be able to have that positive experience come out is fantastic. And we, you know, I was able to meet her.
1: Do you guys consider yourselves heroes? Uh,
2: No, to be honest, um, we were out there doing our job. I know everybody always says that, but we were out there doing our job. It's what we trained for, um, and we applied that training. Um, And we've heard of all these other stories. Uh, Maeve talked about the area that she was on the east side, Uh, the seven of them doing what they could with a a massive area and saving hundreds of people, Um, all the way down to the, the, we heard a number of stories. Now that we're interfacing with residents, that have their own stories. So I, I'd say that the, the real heroes are the, the, the dad that went into his son's bedroom and pulled him out of his bedroom and walked down the hall as his son's bedroom disappeared. Uh, those people, those those people that were saving each other, saving their neighbors uh, with no training. You know, not, They aren't first responders. They were just doing what they could. There's so many of those stories that we've heard now talking to our residents that it's, uh, it's totally heroic. So I, I think those people are the real heroes, to be honest. We were just doing our jobs.
1: The calls Ben and Andy heard were from 14-year-old Lauren Canton, whose house was swept away as the flow moved through. Lauren has made a full recovery, but unfortunately her father Dave was killed and 16-year-old brother Jack still has not been found. The mudslides destroyed more than 100 homes and claimed the lives of 21 people. Two are still missing. It could have been a lot worse if not for the tireless work and heroism of the first responders. This looks like a war zone.
3: It is a war zone. It is. It's, that's how I'm sure the residents feel. It will never look the same to them.
1: Maeve, Ben, and Andy have returned to their duties at the fire station, and they are still working hard to help their community rebuild and recover, something Maeve says could take a very long time. Do you think Montecito will ever be the same?
3: Someday not anytime soon. It's going to be a long. I mean, we'll always have this scar on us. It's a beautiful community and I think that a lot of people will stay, but it was pretty traumatizing for everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to CBSLA uncut. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Check us out on social media at CBSLA and visit our website, at CBSLA.com.